0: I would just say, I make a final note about my, how much I care about the left behind cities and how concerned I am about them and how much I believe that, that's really where the book started for me. It was just the feeling I get when I go to a Buffalo or a Rochester, the feeling I get here living in Baltimore when I go down to DC, just 40 miles away and then come back to Baltimore and just, I'm just stunned by that, by the difference in Prosperity, um, and and just how completely unhealthy that is, and how much, again, for both sorts of places, it's just not it's not good for a country to have that that kind of disparity.
1: For more than a decade, Alec McGillis has been chasing the story of wealth disparity in America, from Seattle's growing economy to a family in Dayton, Ohio, struggling in poverty. McGillis has looked into how tech giants are at the core of the issue. Recently, investigative post J. Dale Shoemaker spoke with McGillis about his research into Amazon and the roots of America's wealth divide.
0: You'd like to think that, 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 that economics would sort of take care of that because as the winner-take-all cities get so damn expensive that, that people would somehow, that things would kind of spread themselves out and correct themselves. But then you see Amazon go and put its second headquarters, not in Buffalo and Rochester, not in St. Louis, not in Baltimore, but in the wealthiest city metro area in the country, which is Washington, D.C. So it's winner take all.
1: For Investigative Post, I'm Garrett Looker, and this is Newsmakers. Well, Alec, welcome uh, to Investigative Post's podcast.
0: Sure, I'm glad to be here.
1: Yeah. Um, now we're going to talk a little bit about your book, uh, Fulfillment: uh, America in the Shadow of Amazon. Um, I've been reading through this; it is excellent. Uh, I really enjoy. Uh, I really enjoy the the people-focused nature of it. Um, this is a really good piece of work. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about that, and then zoom out a little bit um, and talk a little bit more broadly, just about Amazon and uh, particularly Amazon in Western New York. Um, I think the first thing that I wanted to start off by asking you, um, just talk to us a little bit about how you got started on all of this. I mean, what was it about Amazon that caught your eye initially and you said, you know, I need to maybe start researching a book on this?
0: No, actually, the funny thing is that I started out uh, with fulfillment not being about Amazon per se. I wanted to write a book about uh, regional inequality in America, these growing gaps between cities in our country not just the rural urban gap that you hear so much about, but the gap between cities, between sort of winner take all cities like Boston, New York, DC, Seattle, San Francisco, cities like that. And then the much larger group of sort of left behind cities and towns like Buffalo, like Rochester, like Baltimore, where I live, um, like uh, cities in Ohio, where I've spent a lot of time as a reporter, like my hometown of Pittsfield, Mass, small city in Western Mass. Um, there's been a just growing gap between those two sets of c- types of cities. And I've you know watched it happening over, over the years. I saw it happening growing up in Pittsfield, watching the gap growing between Pittsfield and Boston, watched it happening as a national political reporter for the Washington Post when I would go out in the sort of 2008-2009 period around the country as a political reporter, go to places in Ohio, elsewhere in the Midwest, Appalachia, and then come back to D.C., and just be overwhelmed by the incredible prosperity and and complacency on display in DC, while so much of the rest of the country was just really kind of um, in in steep decline. And that gap bothered me so much. And I decided that I wanted to write a book about it, especially after Trump won the election in 2016. And that election, of course, had so much to do with, with these disparities and the resentment that they've produced. And so I thought for about a year, how could I write a book that captures these disparities? What's the best way to kind of come at that issue, this regional inequality? And I finally settled on Amazon as the frame to tell that story for two reasons. One is that Amazon is just so ubiquitous in our life now that it's a handy kind of thread to take you around the country in a sort of metaphorical way, show you what we're becoming as a country. But then more importantly, Amazon and the other tech giants are themselves helping to drive this regional inequality. Because, so, because one of the reasons that we've ended up with such concentrations of wealth in certain places in our country is that we've ended up with an economy that's so concentrated in certain companies. So when you you end up with you know, retail money that used to be spread all around the country now being kind of sucked to Seattle because that's where this, this massive giant that now controls so much of retail in America is based. Um, and, and, and all that kind of commerce and prosperity that used to be spread all over the country is now increasingly drawn there, um, and it's happening in other sectors too. So that's how I settled on Amazon. It was really kind of a secondary. Um, it was just, it was the it was something that I arrived at as a way to tell the story that I really was after, which was these disparities, and then and then Amazon, which is a really good frame through which to tell that story.
1: Sure, sure. Um, just to kind of unpack that a little bit, um, you and I, re- I really like the way that you kind of go about this in the book. Um, let's take the example of, I think it's Dayton, Ohio and, uh, in Seattle. Um, now you talk about, you know, how Amazon has these really bougie offices in Seattle where you can, you know, one of the first examples of a store where you can go in and just pick things off the shelf and you don't even have to pay for it because there's stuff monitoring you to, you know, to, to charge your credit card later. And, um, and then the family in Ohio who is uh, living in homeless shelters, um, because, um, uh, they have no money. And uh, I think it was, is the husband of that family who's working in a cardboard box factory. Um, tell us a little bit more about, like, use that as, I guess, the frame to uh, give us an example of what you mean by there are some cities that are winners and there are some cities that are, are losers.
0: Sure. I mean, the book really focuses on two, set, two winner places and two left behind places. The two winner places are Seattle and Washington, D.C., which I picked as my second winner-take-all place, even before Amazon picked it as its uh, second headquarters. So that was that worked out very well. Um, and and then the two left-behind places are Baltimore, where I live, and um, and then various places in Ohio, including Dayton. And Dayton was just such a you know really kind of strong example of this um, of this dynamic because it's a city that was back in the day really kind of the Silicon Valley of its time, the city that was just the f- of incredible innovation, manufacturing innovation um, in the late 19th century, early 20th century. And now it is it has fallen so, so far, um, so dramatically. Um, and then I, I have defined in some of my reporting out there, this, this family that t- to me was just uh, very emblematic of, of, that, of that sort of downward mobility of the entire city. Um, a, a family um, who, uh, they were not married, two young people who, um, between, had three kids together, and they were living in a homeless shelter when I met them um, in Dayton, despite the fact that the, fa- the father, Todd, had a job working at a cardboard factory, making the cardboard boxes for um, for the Amazon warehouses and other logistics places in town there. Dayton has now become, it, its manufacturing, its incredibly vigorous um, manufacturing uh, economy there has been largely superseded by the logistics industry. The city now, because they've lost so many manufacturing jobs, they've had to fall back on, on all manner of logistics um, stuff, whether it's making cardboard boxes or trucking or packaging or warehouses, because the city, one thing the things the city still has going for it is that it's very centrally located in the country, um, they've kind of had to fall back on that, on that asset. Of course, those jobs make much less, pay much less, and are much less fulfilling than the manufacturing work that preceded it. So Todd is working during as the book opens, he's working at this cardboard plant making very little money Um, and and for that reason and because of other reasons of their life having become very dysfunctional in various ways, um, they end up at the the homeless shelter there in Dayton. And then meanwhile, you have at the other end of the spectrum, um, a city like Seattle where um, where that prosperity that has resulted from, um, from that concentration of the economy and the concentration of wealth in certain places has become ex- really ex- excessive. That's the key thing to understand about um, these disparities. They're not just bad and unhealthy for the cities like Dayton, for the, for the left behind places. They're also unhealthy for the winner-take-all cities like Seattle, where you have a city that was that used to be really very strikingly kind of middle class, um, uh, kind of a, you know, very kind of accessible sort of city. I, I remember going there in the, you know, around 2002 or three for the first time, just being by struck by how much it still felt like a real city, a city where you could feel the, you know, what it used to be, sort of a natural resource town where the, the the logs would come down and be shipped out and from the port, you know, real working rail yard, working port, still a really kind of a gritty city in its way, and and now of course it's just become. Something completely different. The wealth of Amazon and, and Microsoft and others, but especially Amazon, has just completely transformed that place to the point where it's, um, of course, incredibly expensive now, almost Bay Area levels of of of, um, of housing costs. It's um, it's congested. It's the, 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 has, it has really kind of lost the so much of the character that made it an appealing place for for generations. Um, one astr- aspect of that character that it's lost, which I focus on in the book, is the almost total erasure of the city's um, famous um, Black district, uh, the Central District, um, which was this neighborhood, really quite, really in the heart of the city, that became um, in the '50s, '60s, and '70s, you know, after the Great Migration to Seattle, became this incredible cultural hub um, with just all sorts of really kind of astonishing. Level of musical greatness that came out of there: Jimi Hendrix, Ernestine Anderson, Quincy Jones, and this um, wonderful, famous choir director that I um, that I focused that chapter on, who actually just just passed a few months ago. Um, and and so I I talk about the loss of that of that neighborhood um, as it's just been as the as the that wealth that concentrated wealth has just kind of overwhelmed overwhelmed it. And so. So really, this this these disparities there, are they're not they're not good for either sort of place. we we've ended up kind of completely out of whack by having this level of inequality between places.
1: Sure. Now I want to I guess go a step deeper on you know these winner take all cities and these left behind cities. Um, it seems fairly clear how the winner cities get the way they are. You have these large companies that have a presence there. Um, you know whether that's Amazon and in, in uh, you know in Seattle or Silicon Valley uh, all of the big tech firms down there, um, but for the left behind cities, how how did they get that way? I mean, what what happened to to those places that they are in such stark contrast to uh, these winter cities?
0: I would say it's sort of a two step process. And the the first step of it is of course, is, is deindustrialization. So you have just the just massive job loss that um, that resulted from decades of of the sort of collapse of manufacturing in this country, um, so for instance, in Baltimore, the other sort of left behind city that I focus on there, I tell the story of of this amazing place just outside Baltimore called Sparrows Point, which was this peninsula that sticks out into the water just south southeast of Baltimore that was um for much of the 20th century, home to what was, for a time, the largest steelworks in the entire world. Um, Bethlehem Steel had this an huge plant there, huge mill that got up to around 30,000 jobs, um, an entire um, company town right there in the peninsula with six, seven, 8,000 people living there with a street grid and grocery stores and churches and movie theaters and the, the works, an entire company town um, to support um, to support the steelworks, the whole universe. Um, and those jobs were incredibly grueling, incredibly dangerous often, um, but they paid after the unions um, finally came in and you know, one managed to unionize Bethlehem Steel in the forties during the war, um, those jobs became really quite well paid um, and um, somewhat safer and and for a lot of the the men, mostly men who worked there, they were they were jobs that supported you for your entire life, supported you and your family for your life, and were had um, and, and, and held you there because they were well paying because they were in their way quite satisfying. You were making stuff. you were um, you were such an integral part of sort of the physical American economy. And you also had this, this great sense of camaraderie with your, with your coworkers um, that, that really that kept you there for, for years or decades. Um, so Bethlehem Steel um, finally closed down in around, it was, it was a very kind of excruciating slow death, but it basically um, sold, Beth, Bethlehem Steel's itself, went bankrupt in around 2001, and then it passed through various hands the mill before finally closing around 2012. And and that it was just gone. Like that. The, the, the mill was wiped clean off the face of the Pacific Peninsula. The town had already previously been wiped away. So it was just, it's really eerie. You go there and it's just this massive expanse where they, they used to hold this entire huge skyline, industrial skyline, and it's just completely gone. What makes it especially eerie is you drive around and there's still your GPS, if you have GPS on, it still calls out the old street names of the streets streets that that were there, but they're oh, gone. Wow. You're, just, you're just driving on an open plane. Um, and so that happened. And that's very you know a dramatic example of that the industrialization. And there are all sorts of reasons for why why that happened. Um, and but then on top of that, so you have that kind of that collapse. But then on top of that, you have the second cause of of this. Of the of the left behindness of this disparity is the concentration, the fact that the fact that we've we've gotten so lax about about antitrust and monopoly in this country that in all sorts of industries, other industries, you know, beyond manufacturing, you've had this real concentration. So you have cities that like Baltimore, like St. Louis. Um, like you know, Cleveland, like Milwaukee, all these cities that used to have, in addition to their manufacturing strength, used to have their own banking industry, their own real estate industry, their own insurance industry, their own advertising industry. And in all these various sectors, you've seen this concentration, um, corporate concentration, consolidation. and when that when that because we've gotten so lax about about, over the last few decades about um, are tending to to antitrust concerns because the government has just kind of been asleep at the switch on that front. So you end up with, you end up with all these cities losing, so often when those concentrations happen, those consolidations happen, those cities, those sort of mid-sized cities lose the headquarters. They end up with, they become a mere branch town, if that. Um, and, and then on top of that, the other, you know, sort of more general aspect of the of the corporate consolidation is what's happening in the tech industry. So, you know, I already mentioned the retail example, wealth commerce that used to be spread all around the country, in mom and pop stores, in in shopping malls, in department stores, in regional department store chains. My book focuses on a quite large regional department store chain in the Northeast and Midwest that was called the Bonton. You may have, you know, be familiar with it from. From um, it was it was in upstate New York too, and I think and we've the, all had grandmothers who were obsessed with the Bonton. <laughs> exactly. it, it, it grew up. It, it it came out of York, Pennsylvania, a small city in south central Pennsylvania that started the Bonton around like 1890, and it spread around the Northeast, and then finally it just couldn't could not survive the e-commerce wave, the Amazon wave, and it went out of went bankrupt a few years ago. And so all that kind of that that other kind of commerce that used to sustain cities even after they'd lost, maybe lost the steel mill, that so much of that is then gone is 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 now sort of sucked into Amazon. Or think about our industry. Think about the media. You used to have all that revenue, that was that media ad revenue, that used to be spread all around the country in newspapers, TV, local local radio, all all these different realms. And now as you have as the as ad revenue shifts to digital uh, most you know that's that's where it's mostly at now you have two companies that control more than 60% of all digital ad revenue google and facebook and where are they they're in the bay area so you end up with picture all that wealth and all that revenue just kind of getting sucked and hoovered into the bay area and you end up with the dystopian kind of wealth and inequality that you have there so so that's really it's the two part thing: it was de-industrialization, deindustrialization, then coupled with, with, with corporate concentration.
1: Yeah. So, you know, you were talking about Bethlehem Steel, and Buffalo is was another home of a massive, massive, you know, Bethlehem Steel plant. Are are Rust Belt towns, I guess, more likely to be these left behind cities? Uh, you know, is are we were we kind of primed to, I guess, be in that left behind category?
0: To, certainly, um, to to some degree, yes, um, some combination of the fact of so much of the um, well, so much of the manufacturing was was there to begin with, um, because you know th- those those are our, our older cities, those are cities that grew up around that industry. and so when when we started to lose uh, manufacturing to you know to other parts of the world, um it was it was that's where you were going to feel the pain the most in the cities that that had the most of it to begin with. Um, you also had the of course, the dynamic of of unions being stronger in the north, and so therefore, um so you, it wasn't just that we were you saw um those jobs being lost overseas, they were also being lost uh, to the south, to the non-union south because um the, because uh, labor was cheaper down there while the left behind city dynamic is especially strong in the north for those reasons there are plenty very left behind places um, elsewhere in the country as well I and mean, i think for instance of the the devastation of jackson mississippi um, which has you know come come to the fore just recently because of their water crisis there but a city that for different similar but different dynamics you know has is is in really really dire straits now Yeah, with not just the water, the water uh, debacle, but also just extraordinarily dramatic white flight and 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 violence. Now that last year um, they were by far the most um, had by far the highest homicide rate in the country, Mm -hmm. Um, just off the charts. You you see, you see the disparities all over the country. I see them. I certainly see them all over the country when I travel around. It's, it's not, it's not just uh, a Northern
1: issue. Sure. And so you've, you've touched on this a little bit, but what about, what about those conditions open the door for Amazon? I mean, what, what is it about, you know, these quote unquote left behind um, cities that allows Amazon to come in and well, I was, you know, just looking at my, my data earlier. uh, We have, I think seven Amazon warehouses between here and Rochester, Um, What what is it about um, these types of places that, you know, is, I guess, uh, welcoming to Amazon?
0: Well, it's, for starters, Amazon is now, in in a way, kind of needs to be everywhere. um, Because they, because we as a country have, the American consumer has grown so extraordinarily reliant on Amazon that, and so, and so expects, you know, and so has so come to expect um, really, almost instant gratification of that one-click order—that that Amazon really needs to be just about everywhere, um, you know, close to any kind of sizable population center to be able to fulfill that promise of a one or two-day delivery. Um, but what has—but what has then made certain communities especially vulnerable to Amazon's overtures to be be actually subsidized to build those warehouses. That it has to build everywhere is the desperation of of the local of of local leaders who have seen seen all this job loss, seen all this decline, and are so desperate for any kind of jobs they can bring in, any kind of um, any kind of quote growth to point to, that they fall victim to Amazon's demands for for these subsidies. I mean the the subsidies that were just given out there for the Niagara county warehouse are incredible. I mean they're so huge. I was really kind of stunned to see your story on that and the $124 dollars from the county alone plus um, much more from the state, um, some of the largest subsidies in the in the entire country just astonishing. Um, and and was just, and this 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 notion that just it, it just boggles the mind every time. This notion that that Amazon is able to persuade local officials that it would only come to the region if it gets these subsidies, when in fact it has to be there. Again, it has they have to be there. They can't. These are warehouses that they need to make deliveries from. It will do Amazon no good to build that warehouse in in Ohio instead they need to be in western new york and and yet and yet they're able to persuade local officials that that the subsidies are 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 necessary to their to their coming there and it's just it's it's really quite quite gobsmacking
1: sure yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because that was going to be my next question about uh, about the government assistance side of things. Um, I was I was blown away by the little anecdote uh, in the book about the um, the U.S. community's uh, you know, bulk purchasing contract out of Prince William County. Um, having I've I've done some reporting on piggyback contracting in the past, so I've I'm a little bit familiar with kind of how that works. But the way that you know the way that they were able to. Uh, do that U.S. communities contract that then got, what was it, 55,000 uh, school districts around the country you know, just buying stuff on Amazon, not even, not even necessarily a discounted price. Um, talk to me a little bit about the, I guess, the history of Amazon getting government money, whether, whether from those school districts to the U.S. communities contract or through the, the tax subsidies that we've seen here in Western New York that, that you just mentioned. The tax avoidance was, um, is at the core of Amazon.
0: It was at the core of Amazon going all the way back. Um, the Their whole advantage from the get-go, of course, was as a, when they were just selling books, was that they could sell books um, without having to charge assessed sales taxes um, and therefore had right off the bat a five or six or 7% advantage over traditional brick and mortar booksellers. But they only had that advantage The way the tax laws worked back then was that Amazon only had that advantage in a given state, you know, not having to assess sales taxes if it was not physically present in the state. And then all those years since, for many years since, they actually avoided building warehouses in larger states because they didn't want to give up that sales tax advantage in those states. So they would deliver into Ohio from Kentucky. and didn't build any warehouses in Ohio until like twenty fourteen. It's only when they got to the point where they were so huge, so all in demand, um, that they kind of realized that they had to be everywhere. and but at that point, the way they then managed to keep getting sort of getting public tax breaks was through these 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 prevailing on local communities to give them these incredible subsidies in order to build a warehouse there. So that's how they kind of Um, made up for the fact that they were going to have to start actually assessing sales taxes in places. On top of that, as you mentioned, they've become very aggressive now in in making money from the public sector by selling to the public sector. Um, They have a whole division of the company now that is focused on getting government contracts. Um, These are government contracts at the federal level. They're government contracts for for the biggest ones, of course, are for the cloud. They have they make um, the 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 most profitable part of Amazon by far now is 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 there is Amazon Web services. They're these giant data centers that through which so much of um, the uh, the tech economy is now being being run. Netflix, Zoom, all these others, you know, all of its streaming through these data centers. and and Amazon got some very big contracts from the federal government, from the CIA and others to to handle that for the government. So they make they get that money from, from the taxpayer, but they've also now become very aggressive about doing more traditional group procurement, just selling um, all the stuff that the government needs to buy. They, um, Amazon has made a big aggressive move, move to get that business. And, and then it's now percolated down to the local level where they, as you mentioned, they've now become very aggressive about trying to get local school districts, local government to, to buy all their stuff from amazon we're talking about you know everything from pencils to paper to um, to staplers to you know furniture all of it and musical instruments and, i think i think exactly. they mentioned you exactly. know exactly everything everything you want you know amazon you know it's the everything store they can do it all of course
1: mm-hmm. yeah yeah it does feel like we are that there are more and more you know just small towns around where at one point it may have been possible to you know grow up there raise you know get a job somewhere locally raise a family there etc but now you know you can live there sure but you have to drive 20 30 40 miles to get to something you know i guess uh, more economically viable um the other thing that it was striking to me was just the secrecy element of all of this. I mean, even even in Western New York, whenever these Amazon projects first start, they're always called like Project Olive or Project X or something like that. And in the U.S. Communities contract, there was some some element that uh, they weren't they were advised against, you know, filling foil requests, um, you know, from local reporters. Uh, just talk briefly about that. I'm just, I'm just kind of curious. You know why why that secrecy element is so important as you know Amazon is spreading its tentacles.
0: Oh, it's incredible. I mean, it's it's such a huge sort of central animating um, aspect of their of their approach, and it's so especially ironic given that their founder, you know, bought the second or third most important newspaper in the country, the Washington Post, and. To sort of save journalism and save um, s- save the cause of 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 sort of journalistic accountability and all that. Meanwhile, his company, his enormous company, is um, is completely undermining transparency at every turn.
1: Hmm. Interesting, yeah. I mean the um, the story behind the Niagara County warehouse here that they just recently approved is that they had originally wanted to put that on Grand Island. Um, the uh, an island in the niagara river uh and there was some public opposition to that and you know i could i was not able to this is what my you know story that uh is preceding this conversation uh talked about a little bit but there was never an official reason given for why they pulled out of grand island but there was some speculation that that the uh the public outcry was part of it that you know that was you know that was just beyond the pale and we needed to go next door um yeah. So where does, you know, with all of the, I guess, the winner cities, loser cities stuff that we've talked about and some of the tax subsidy stuff, where does this leave a place like Western New York? I mean, like I mentioned earlier, we now have, I think, six or seven Amazon warehouses between uh, Buffalo and Rochester. Um, what is, you know, what is the future hold for this region now that Amazon has such a big footprint here? I mean,
0: that, the, the as far as Amazon goes, the the sad fact is that you you're, you've ended up we've ended up with just a kind of a a sorting out of the country into 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 different sorts of places into different sorts of places. They're they're everywhere now, but they're everywhere in completely different sorts of sorts of ways. They manifest themselves in different ways. So you have the winter cities are now going to have the high paying Amazon jobs. Um, it's not just Seattle and Washington D.C. which got the second headquarters. But they're also now in. They're in Boston. They're in New York. They're in San Francisco. They're in, in LA. Um, they've got thousands of of um, white collar professional jobs paying you know, hundred fifty thousand dollars on average or higher in those places. And then the um, the rest of the country gets to be the warehouse towns essentially. And um, and it's it's not good. I mean, it's and it's hard to see how that how that's going to change. We, you know, Amazon and the other tech giants have gotten so huge and so dominant because we've been so incredibly slack about, about guarding against monopoly. We, we had this fight hundred years ago. We had this fight with, with Standard Oil and all the other giants of that era. And we decided that it was doing great damage to the country and to the economy. And, and, we, and we took on the fight in various ways. And then we let it slide um, in recent decades.
1: Sure. Um, one of the things that I have found very striking is just the, the disparity in the amount of tax subsidies that Amazon ultimately gets. I mean, we have, we have a perfect example right here in Western New York. We have, um, a, a relatively small, uh, Amazon facility. I think it's maybe around a hundred jobs. Um, they got, I think 7 million, uh, roughly in tax subsidies to, to build that particular facility. Um, and then you go, you know, not 10 miles away, uh, not 20 miles away to Niagara County. And you have all, obviously a larger warehouse. This is like one of the thousand job, uh, thousand job warehouses. But they are getting far more than 10 times the amount of, you know, of subsidies there. Um, I guess this is kind of a two part question, you know, part one uh, what drives that disparity on Amazon's part? I mean, are they are they really just looking to get the most that they possibly can out of out of every town, county, city? Um, and And part two is what should our you know what should our town supervisors and our mayors and our economic development officials be doing or saying to maybe level that playing field a little bit
0: I think I mean my, my sense of it is that, that Amazon will just take as much as they can possibly get. I mean they'll just see, they'll assess the level of desperation and they'll go for they'll shoot for the moon you saw it in the hq2 um fight as well um when they were you know those 238 cities desperately applying to to be home to the second headquarters and and yet they end up choosing very predictably choosing washington uh you know metro washington and and new york city and and the, the 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 subsidies that new york offered were way Agreed to were way beyond those offered by Northern Virginia, um, and and it really seemed simply as if New York had been that much more desperate, and had been been really kind of just played for fools as a result, and 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 that was then one reason why why things blew up because there was such one reason for the big backlash in New York was that the, the subsidies were just so over the top there, um, and so really I think they'll just yeah they'll just you know they'll 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 get as much as they can. It's it's pretty basic. And then and then for the local officials, I think it's just a matter of having having more of that um, awareness of the fact that 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 they need to be in a given region, that it's not that you're they need to be there. You're you're in a better bargaining position than you realize. Um, and and of course. That still leaves you with the problem of the the terrible problem of sort of interregional rivalries right so one town or county competing against the other. And because, even if they have to be in one part of Western New York there's still the question of where they're going to be and which which jurisdictions going to get going to get going to get that that um, that quote growth. Um, And in that regard. The best way to deal with that, of course, is, and this is, I know, this is like the great longstanding challenge of sort of local government and local economic development in this country is just to be able to think more,
1: more regionally. Sure, sure. Um, As you, I guess, have been reporting on on this, have you come across, you know, uh, economic development folks or public officials who have better ideas of doing economic development, um, particularly in this Amazon age?
0: Not really, I gotta say. Um,
1: uh, I've
0: what, what you are starting to see now more and more is act, local residents pushing back at some of these deals um, when they when they catch wind of them. Um, there was there was some resistance recently to a warehouse in um, outside, outside Pittsburgh. There's been there's more and more resistance in the Lehigh Valley area of Pennsylvania. Eastern Pennsylvania, which has really become kind of ground zero for the warehouse logistics um, industry on the East Coast, um, kind of the counterpart to to the um, Inland Empire um, outside LA, which is just completely taken over by warehouses. Um, and so you're seeing so you're seeing kind of a more sort of citizen-led pushback in, in a lot of places. But for ec- economic development folks, it's still it's still so easy to to point to that warehouse simply as as growth as new jobs um, and it's there's just um, you know I really haven't I haven't seen and you know the, the economic development folks who can who can afford to to sort of um, to, to not play that game are the ones in the winter places who are getting to do um, you know getting all the the better sort of jobs and so they don't even have to but Amazon's not, not even gonna come knocking for them because they know it's, they know it's pointless. But for, the, for all the places, the left behind places, no, I've not seen um, someone saying, um, you know what, we, don't, we can do better than this. We're gonna do this instead. Um, I'm sure they're out there, but I'm not aware of them. And then finally, you know, I have been urging people to, um, regular people, to be more mindful of all of this from the consumer standpoint as well. You know, and to think about to think about where that money is going when you're making that purchase from um, from Amazon instead of from a local store, even even if you're buying it from you know, I'm I'm no great fan of like the strip mall, the shopping mall, the big box. My God, you know, they're they have had their their own um, real sort of um, uh, deleterious effect on the American landscape. But, but even when you're buying it from them, more of that money is staying local, and and you're also having the benefit, at least, of some kind of social interaction with with your with people in your community when you're when you're sort of you are know, carrying out your role as a consumer that way. There's some interaction with the cashier, with the person stocking the shelves. There, I think one reason for that that our society has become so incredibly atomized so isolated such incredible levels of loneliness and all the rest is that we don't even have those passing encounters anymore uh, partly as a result of of the growth of e-commerce you know when that box lands on the front step or on the porch you're barely even often going to look up to acknowledge the guy who brought it right and there's just no interaction at all anymore between between your wish for something and the fulfillment of that. It's these places that make our, our city special are at real risk of, of shriveling away. And it's because we've just turned so inward, um, hunkered down so much, and have and just um, really kind of gotten used to that kind of living. And, and it, I really believe it's, it's terrible for, for our towns and cities.